0: Now, as Travis said at the beginning, our church has moved through the season of Easter. We celebrated that Jesus's resurrection victory over sin and death. And at Pentecost, we celebrate the arrival of the Spirit, who is the comforter, the advocate for God's people. And and of course, we continue to live into these realities, these works of God. These aren't one-off seasons for the year. We live into them uh, in a deep way in particular seasons of the year. But then we bring that with us through the rest of the year. Now, the season we're we're entering into is called ordinary time. And ordinary time begins with the focus on the identity of God as Trinity: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now I'm gonna approach this in an odd way, but we are going to come to the Trinity. On and off for a little while, I am going to be preaching reflections on the book of the Bible called Song of Songs. Yes, you heard that correctly. Um, If you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and actually turn to chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. A lot of us have heard this book called The Song of Solomon. But the first, the very first two words of the book mean the song of all songs, The best song. So in the same way, the Bible speaks of the holy of holies. And when it speaks of the holy of holies, what it's saying is, yes, all the earth that God has created is holy. But there's this place in which God's presence is concentrated in a particular way where we meet God. And so in the Old Testament, this is the holy of holies. Well, with the title of this particular book, the author is saying, This is the best of all songs. Now, we are going to keep it pretty PG-ish. We don't have nursery or children's ministries through the summer. Um, And it might be that we offer a midweek extension for further conversation if we find that's helpful. But truly, the reason we're going to spend time here is not to stir things up, to try to make people blush and giggle and see if we can get some more visitors over the summer season. Um, I I will confess, I hope that married couples will use some of the poetry on each other. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. (laughs) Oh, I would take delight if I heard you guys using that, those pickup lines. There are some better ones than that, but we won't go there yet. Um, Really, the the song does not get a whole lot of airtime within the church, and it's important. It gives us a wonderful opportunity to learn or at least be reminded what it means to be in a committed marriage relationship. We'll talk about that some. But there's also a lot more to it than that. The song is not only for married couples within the church. Now, I'll tell you, if you're a teenager, I hope that you read the Bible. But when you come to this one, skip over it, okay? You need a a guide to walk through it with you. The Bible, the whole Bible is for the church. And so this song is as well. The book has a lot to say about what it means to be in relationship with God. Now, the the complexity of it, in fact, the the fact that it often has two levels of meaning, that means that if we learn to read it well, then we learn to read the entire, entire Bible better as we're learning to read this. So how do we read it? Uh, Song of Songs is a book of love poems, and it's actually um, some of the most exquisite love poems from all of the ancient world. The experts on such things say this is one of the most beautiful collection of love poetry that you will find in Egypt and Arabic and all these different cultures. It's debated whether they're a collection or if there is some actual plot to the poetry, and we'll, we'll talk about that more as we go along. Now through the years it has been ignored or treated to extremes. So some have read it and said, this cannot mean what I think it means. (laughs) At different times in history, there's been a fearfulness and even a disdain for the human body. And in those times it's been common to completely spiritualize the surface meaning of the song. So one example where the poem speaks of parts of the female body These are made to refer to the Old and New Testaments instead of actually the female body, which that's interesting. It's even beautiful in one sense, but I don't think it's the original intent of the song. Now, another extreme has been to view the song as like sort of a streak of rebellion in the middle of the Bible. God's name is not mentioned in an explicit way. So some have said that the song is a defense, right in the middle of the Bible, of free love, of love unrestrained by the tradition of exclusive marriage ties. And we're, we're gonna talk about this more, but I'll say now, these poems are clearly about two people who are publicly and privately committed to one another. Throughout the song, there's a group of others. You'll see this if you pay close attention to it, uh, where the roles, the speakers change. And there's this group of others who celebrate and provide witness to the love of these two. Even the woman and the man's mothers are spoken of, which if your mothers are spoken of, it's public. It's not a secret, shameful thing that is happening. Now part of their love does occur in private, which is the way it should be, but there is public witness to their love. Now, one other extreme way this song has been read is as something of a manual for sexual relations between a husband and a wife. And in this reading, all the spiritual sides of it are overlooked. That's not how we're gonna read it. One rule for reading the Bible is to read it as a single story. All the individual books or stories fit within the larger story of what God is doing within the world through Jesus Christ. And this way of reading it does not have to be forced. We'll see connections with the song from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. So just a quick one, for instance. There was a type of Egyptian love poetry in which all the features of a beloved would be listed from head to toe. And this happens in chapters uh, 4 and 7 of of the song. The woman and the man do this. They they list each one another's features. What you have in the book of Revelation and the passage that CJ read for us is a love poem about Christ, the beloved. So this poem, this wonderful, the best of all love poems... It will be about husbands and wives, but it is also about Christ, the genuine beloved. I'll also point out one really cool feature. So we want to think in our world that love is all-consuming and satisfying, that if we find the one whom our soul loves, we will be satisfied forever. This song tells us that that's not true because it ends on a note of longing, The beloved is asking, won't you return to me? And this fits with what we find in the book of Revelation at the very end, when the spirit and the bride say, come, come, Lord Jesus. We find this in all human love relationships, that the love only leaves you longing for more love. It is wonderful and in some way satisfying, but you're still longing for more. And at the book of Revelation, we find that human, human beings, the cry of the church is where Jesus come, satisfy us forever. So this book fits in with so much of what we read in the rest of the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to claim there are going to be no mysteries at the end of these reflections. There will be. But there's a way of reading it that makes sense and that holds the extremes together. So to that end, we're not starting at the very beginning of the song. We're starting near the end because these verses provide a key for the rest of it. So if you were reading all the way through, especially if you were Jewish and you knew all the intricacies of the Hebrew language, you would arrive at this moment in chapter eight and you would just smile and say, ah, there is this beautiful key that opens up the rest of the song in a wonderful way. So hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'll see why I think it's justified to preach Song of Songs on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> so I want to draw out some of the defining qualities of the love between these beloveds. So for one, the love between them is an exclusive and committed love. So I mentioned there have been these very spiritual readings of the poem that play down physical intimacy. Within it. And I don't think I'm going to need to work hard to convince any of you of this but there's no doubt the song is about the love between a man and a woman. It opens with this, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This couple is experiencing the intoxicating effect of love. And this is not at all a free love. The woman says to her beloved in chapter eight, verse six, and you can read this in your Bibles, Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. So seals were the main form of a signature in the ancient world. There were seals that looked like a stamp with a, a picture in it that might signify some person or family. And these, there were also these cylinder seals that could be rolled across things. In fact, um, many people were buried with their seals, they've been able to find. And the seals... Signified ownership. So listen to what the woman is saying to her beloved. Will you let me own you, heart and body? Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. She wants him to belong to her exclusively. Then she says, for love is strong as death jealousy as fierce as the grave now those are very strong words they even sound a bit threatening if you're reading it closely now one problem that we encounter as we read this is our cultural meanings of love today are very confused in fact they're even mutually exclusive on the one hand we have a definition of love as a passionate desire for another And on the other hand, we have a definition of love as giving complete freedom to another. So in Greek, the kind of love that's described in the poem is called eros. This is where we get the word erotic. It's a love that is associated with sexual desire, a love of deep, passionate desire for another. And this is idealized in our movies and TV shows and in our culture. But we also see a love today that is just a complete freedom that's given to another, giving full freedom to another to, to be who they wish to be. So I've heard news stories highlighted in recent years that tell the story of married couples where one person has chosen, felt drawn to become an entirely different person, a different individual altogether. And the spouse to this person stays with them because of love. I didn't marry them because of who they were, but just because, of, because I love them. I can accept this change. And what's being exalted in these stories is the idea that the purest love provides freedom for a person to become whoever they wish to be. I can't hold on to them. I have to let them go. Now, this is a distortion of what's known in the Bible as agape love. So agape is the type of love that's most often used to describe God's love for humanity. It's a love that's sacrificial and forgiving. So Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this kind of love is not always based on the loveliness or desirability of the other, or even on what the other can give in return. This is agape love. It's a forgiving and generous love. But here's what's entirely unique and special about the Bible's full picture of love. It's as if there's a bringing together of eros and agape, of desiring love and forgiving love. So God shows love to humans when they're not entirely lovable or desirable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God displays a love that's greater than what humans can give him in return. So he's clearly not showing his love just to expect something in return. But this does not mean that God is disinterested in how how humans respond. That he cares not whether we love him in return. In fact, it's the opposite. This is where God's love is also a form of eros. God actually does desire us. Did you hear Christ in that gospel passage? Father, give them the love that I've had with you so that they may be one with us as you and I are perfectly one. In the book of James, it's, we're told that God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has placed within us. So there are only two relationships in the Bible where jealousy is described as being entirely appropriate the divine human relationship and the marriage relationship. These are the only two relationships that are considered completely exclusive. Humans can have only one God, and if they worship another, it triggers God's jealousy. And God's jealousy is an energy that tries to rescue the relationship. Similarly, a man and a woman can have only one spouse. And if there's a threat to that relationship, Jealousy is a proper emotion. Now, this does not, I want to say this clearly as a disclaimer, this does not justify violence. It does not justify spouses who seek to completely control another. It does not justify any sort of abuse, verbal or physical. And if someone were in an unhealthy relationship like that, you need to find someone quickly with whom you can talk about this. You don't need to suffer quietly. That's not what God has called you to do. That is not a form of suffering with Christ when you are suffering violence and abuse. Now, the woman in this poem is expressing the desire of marital love, that it be exclusive and it be committed. There's an appropriate desire that the other would in some way be exclusively ours that no other human being or hobby would take precedence over the beloved. Now, it is a fair question what this exclusivity means. Does it mean that the partners can control each other? To say that we belong to another person in today's world sounds oppressive. I'm not sure if you saw several weeks ago the birth, the, the birth rate for the past year Uh, came out, and it's one of the lowest that's ever been reported, and one of the reasons for this is that more and more people are prolonging or refusing to enter into a marriage relationship, and one of the reasons for this is they do not want to have their sense of freedom and independence taken from them. So to say that we belong to another person in our world sounds oppressive, This is the next quality of the couple's love that I wanna draw out. So first of all, it is exclusive and committed, but it is not solitary. It is not solitary. It doesn't exist unto itself. It doesn't exist on its own. These are Jewish poets. And in poetry, you find beautifully creative ways of saying something that could be said in a lecture, but it wouldn't be nearly as lovely or inspiring. It might touch our minds, but it might not reach our hearts or our souls to the same level that poetry came. So the woman says that love's flashes are flashes of fire, the flame of Yah. Now this is so fun and nerdy, but fun. Yah is used here at the end of the word for fire, So just like we put endings on a word to intensify it, big becomes bigger and biggest. The woman puts Yah on the end of fire to signify the most intense of all fires. Yah is the greatest possible intensifier one can use in the Hebrew language because it is the beginning of the name of Yahweh, of God himself, the one who is a consuming fire. What she is saying poetically is that the love that she shares with her beloved is from the flame of Yahweh himself. It is not a solitary love that they have produced on their own. It does not exist on its own and it will not sustain itself on its own. We know from life in the world that the flame of love between a man and a woman often burns out. It does. We have this romantic view that our love can last forever, but on its own, it cannot. If a couple exists only to themselves, and if their world includes only them, the love will fail. People in our world enter into one-flesh unions of love all the time, over and over. But ignited by the flame of Yahweh, the woman says, their love cannot be quenched. The woman continues to speak of this love. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Now remember, we're going to read this story as part of the entire story of scripture. This is the love that brought Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. That did not allow them to drown. And Yahweh later says to his people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. The reason that we can speak about Song of Songs on Trinity Sunday is because the only reason that such a thing as marriage exists is because God is Trinity. The only reason that there is such a thing as a one flesh union between a man and a woman that is exclusive and committed For life is because there is such a thing as trinity it is rooted in the identity of god the love that is shared between the father and the son is the spirit the spirit is god's love that is poured out on human beings and we're told that the spirit makes us one with christ and one with the father we are united and become one with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, just as a husband and wife become one with one another. Now I asked a minute ago, what does the exclusivity of marriage mean? Does it mean couples can control one another? And the song answers this. It describes love as the fire of Yah, the fire of God's Spirit. And what does God's Spirit do? His fire. Well, when God is a fire in the burning bush, for instance, of Exodus or in the flames of Pentecost, he may consume, but God never burns up or destroys with his fire. He makes a person more alive through his fire. He anoints a person with his fire and they burn like his spirit burns. Marital love is to be a mirror of the workings of the triune God. It's not a free-for-all love. That's not safe, a safe kind of love. The kind of love that's free, that sets everybody free to do whatever they want, it makes you fearful of asking for true commitment. How do I ask you what I need from you, which is, can I know that you'll be committed to me and to me only? Marital love is exclusive and committed, but it's, it's also not solitary. And in this, this sense, it's not at all controlling. It's a love that sets another person on fire and makes them more alive. So here is a beautiful picture of this. Adam in the garden is made Adam, and Adam means earth. But when the woman is created, he wakes up out of his sleep, and he does a poem, and Adam becomes ish, and ish means man of fire. When he is introduced to his wife, he becomes like a man who is set on with the love of God's spirit, and this can happen within an exclusive and committed marriage relationship. Men and women can be set on fire in such a way that doesn't make them hoard in and protect themselves from the world, but instead they can be sent back out into the world from their homes of love, feeling confident to serve God and to serve the world. Now in our culture of radical independence, people put off marriage, but we don't just put off marriage. Many people avoid too close, uh, tight-knit community because we're fear of being controlled. So it's not just marriage. But we can be so afraid of being controlled by others that we miss the gift of belonging to others. This is what happens in marriage and in community. We find beautiful places to belong. So marriages are meant to be many churches where the love of the triune God is manifest and spouses are set on fire by one another's love for each other. And if you're married, I want to encourage you, you need to be praying for your marriage. You need to be repenting on behalf of your marriage. And you need to seek the flame of Yah in your marriage. You need to be a mini church within your marriage. But married or not, Christ wishes to make us his bride. He wishes to set us on fire with his love. So not only has he loved us when we were not lovely, his love is not just agape love, this unconditional forgiving love, which is wonderful. His love is also an eros love. Jesus actually desires you. You are his beloved, and he wishes to make you beautiful as his bride. If you don't know Christ... This is the most wonderful place you can come is into a relationship with Jesus, who will be a lover of your soul. No other love is going to satisfy you and quench the thirst that you have for relationship and for satisfaction. This is the relationship that we need. And so marriage is only pointing That is its purpose. It is a gift, but it's only pointing to a love that we need even more than marriage. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.